Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our lead pastor, Pastor Greg Brown, with this week's sermon. In case you didn't know, uh, I'm, a, uh, I'm a software engineer by day. That's my day job, all right? So this is, this is my night job, as it were, nights and weekends job. Uh, I'm available during the day, don't worry. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I do have a, a standard nine to five, uh, and I'm a software engineer. Um, in fact, I've always been kind of a, a computer geek, all right? That's, that's sort of like who I am. If you ask any of my closest friends, they're like, yeah, he's kind of a geek. He's kind of a dork, right? Uh, and, and, and that's okay, right? Like, it's, it's okay, at least now, right? I'm more secure in that now than I once was when I was a kid. Because, like, being a computer geek like me back in the late 90s and 2000s was rough, all right? Like, it was rough, especially in the friend department, okay? Like, you had to be pretty self-confident and, and not have to worry about a whole lot of affirmation from other people if you were going to be a computer geek in the late 90s, early 2000s. See, the, trying to find a group of people who would consider you socially acceptable if you were a geek uh, w- was difficult, all right? It was difficult. You see, the, the preppy kids had their, uh, their thing going on where they, they dressed really nicely and thought they were too wealthy or at least wanted to act too wealthy uh, to care about school, right? And then you had the sportsy people, right? The jocks, whatever you want to call them, right? I call them sportsy people uh, because I'm a geek. Um, but uh, yeah, they, like, so you got all the sports teams, things like that. They've got one another, right? And they've got the people that kind of hang out with that, uh, that crowd. And they, they kind of overlap with the, the preppy folks a little bit, right? Like you got high amounts of power in the sports atmosphere. You got a lot of money going on. Like everybody wants to be friends with those two groups of people. The, interestingly, like the band geeks kind of had their own thing on the side, right? They went to all the same events as the sportsy people, but like the two never mixed, right? It was like oil and water. Like you, that, you don't cross that boundary, right? But they, there was enough of those people to kind of have a solid little like cohort of friends, right? You had enough band geeks to, to make that happen. Even the, the supposed outcasts, the, and this is showing my age a little bit, like the skater kids, right? With their giant Jinko jeans and their, their Vans shoes and like the, the, the wallet chain that goes down to your knees, some of y'all remember this. Um, some of you were this, all right? I know. Uh, even those people, those outcasts, were uh, numerous enough to have some like-minded fellows. But being into computers was pretty odd at the time. I mean, these days, everybody has their faces in a screen. They're curating content for consumption by the rest of the world. But back then, having a website or two wasn't something that would really get you points in the social arena, all right? Like, you didn't put that out there when you first met somebody, oh, I have a website. They were like, oh, you're one of those people, and then they never talked to you again. But the, the reality is that uh, that, coupled with the fact that I'm a relatively straight-laced, rule-following Christian kid at the time, right? Like, that didn't help either. So I had these two things kind of going against me, socially speaking, all right? Um, And because interests like mine weren't really incentivized by my peers, there weren't many other people who shared my interests or at least wanted to be open about it. Of course, when everyone has a click, though, it becomes pretty obvious who doesn't have a click, 
right? You're familiar, if you, if you went to public school at least, you're familiar with the idea, or at least, I mean, you might even experience this at work, I don't know. There's that one table, right? Everybody else sort of has a click, and then there's the one that's reserved for the, the others, right? The, the outcasts, the, the people who don't have other social groups, right? And so uh, I typically threw my lot in with those folks, right? And, and the few, like, kids who would kind of cross enemy lines from the other camps from time to time, right? As it turns out, a few of those social pariahs that I chose to, uh, to associate myself with did share my interests, at least to some extent, and we found ourselves in a computer class together. While only one or two uh, also wanted to be software engineers, these friends uh, really liked computers because they loved computer games, right? And I, like, I loved computer games too. I absolutely loved them. In fact, I still, in theory, like computer games a whole lot. I just don't have a whole lot of free time to do that kind of stuff anymore. But like, just super into it, right? So one day, a friend of mine who was not quite as rule-following as I was brought this uh, CD to computer class. If you don't know what a CD is, uh, I don't know how to help you, right? <laughs> there are some people in this world that don't know what CDs are. I don't know. Anyway. Unlike me, like I said, this, rule, this friend sort of considered the rules as flexible guidelines, you might say, all right? And it turned out that this disc contained everything you needed to start up this one game and play, play it multiplayer style on the school's network. And you could put the disc in, start the game up, take the disc out, hand it to the next guy, and play it multiplayer throughout the classroom. What an incredible thing, right? We thought, hey, if we can get away with this, we can sit there and we can play games the whole time in computer class, and it's gonna be amazing, right? We're gonna get credit for, for this stuff, and I know I'm a rule follower, I said I was a rule follower, look, but like when you have a very small group of friends, you don't do much to rock the boat, right? Like I, I needed to keep those people, so, so I was like, all right, I'm in, let's, let's try this out. So obviously the teacher caught on that something was happening relatively quickly, and, um, but we were pretty good at hiding exactly what was going on, right? She had an inkling, right? She was like, huh, kids are acting a little funny, right? Like, they're, they're really focused on their computers right now, right? Usually, like, I have to worry about, like, them doing other stuff, but these kids, are just, they're in it. And that's weird. So she caught on that, like, something was going on, but we were pretty good at that, like, that alt-tab thing, right? Where you just, you minimize the, the game when the teacher comes around. And we did it in unison. It was, it was perfectly orchestrated. It was the perfect crime. But obviously that worked well until it didn't, right? The teacher got smart. She found out a way to like kind of surprise us, walk around behind us and see what was going on on our screens. And we were sitting there clicking around furiously, uh, trying to kill one another in this game. And, uh, Interestingly, like, she, she caught all of us, but like, the magic disc did go in the trash, okay? Like, she did take the magic disc. We call it, like, that's what I think of it as, as the magic disc, right? The one ring, right? Uh, the, the magic disc, she took it and threw it in the, in the trash, and all of our dreams of playing computer games for an hour a day at school were crushed. That is, un until another teacher let us play SimCity and Minesweeper to pass his class. He actually gave us an A, uh, if we met certain metrics in SimCity and Minesweeper. But that's another story. It's interesting, though, that the teacher in this computer class with the magic disc didn't use that as a teaching moment. She saw what we were doing. She was like, hey, like, obviously this is wrong. I don't know if maybe she was impressed that we had pulled it off. 
Like we were, we were actually like showing that we had good networking skills, like not social networking, but like computer networking, right? We were good at that stuff. I don't know if maybe that's it. But she just carried on as if nothing happened, which was weird. Okay, like, and, and really seriously, to this day, I don't know why she wouldn't have like taken us to the principal's office or whatever else, because this is a pretty big offense. You're running like unapproved software on the school's network. It's a pretty big deal. But maybe she just didn't take the opportunity. Maybe she saw something going wrong. Maybe she saw something going sideways, and she just chose not to take the opportunity. In the passage we're going to look at today, Mark 9, 30 through 37, we find that the disciples got caught red-handed, just like I did. But Jesus, as this perfect teacher, uses it as an amazing teachable moment and shows them the true nature of the kingdom that he proclaims. Right? It says that he came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And constantly we see that Jesus is just sort of pulling back the curtains a little bit more on the kingdom. And so in this passage, we see that Jesus catches them in a sin, in pride. And he just goes, ah, this, this moment is a teachable moment. I'm going to show you what the kingdom of God is really about. You think it's about one thing. It's about something else completely. And so this morning, we're going to read March, Mark 30. Verses, uh, sorry, Mark 9, 30 through 37. If you guys could stand with me, we're going to read that uh, and stand in respect of God's word. Again, Mark 9, 30 through 37, if you're still tapping there. It says this, they went on from there and passed through Galilee and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying. They were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was greatest. And he sat down and called the 12. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child And put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives such one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray one more time. Lord, I pray that you would help us to open our eyes this morning. Lord, that you would not just help us, but Lord God, that you would do it. That you would open our eyes by the power of the Holy Spirit. That Lord God, you might sanctify us in this. Lord God, show us where we have fallen short. Lord, for I know that we have. I pray, Lord God, that as we consider what it means to lay aside pride and walk in the humility that is given to us as children of God, Lord, help us to see that, Lord, you are far above us, that you are immense and powerful, and that, Lord, we are small and insignificant, and yet, Lord, you love us. And so, Lord, help us to walk in that love, that, Lord, as we see others, Lord God, that you would help us to, to love them as you have loved us. Help us to see the poor, the disenfranchised, and, Lord, reach out instead of blocking the world out. I pray, Lord God, that you would change our hearts change our actions. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. You can have a seat. So the first thing that you should really notice in this passage is that Jesus gets alone 
with his disciples to teach them difficult things. The crowds wanted what Jesus did, but his disciples wanted him. We might level criticisms at the disciples for being hard-headed at times or prayerless in this passage that we saw just last week. And we just see them struggling constantly over and over again. So maybe we have a sort of negative view of them at times, at least in this pre-resurrection state. But there is something here that is uh, sort of agreeable, that's, that's laudable about these disciples, and that's that they left behind everything else and they followed Jesus. So with all of their error, all of their difficulties, they had one thing right. They said, I'm just going to follow Jesus. And for those that truly sought after Jesus himself, not just what he did, he got alone with them and taught them directly. If Jesus was a celebrity pastor today, and forgive me for comparing him because that's, it's not parallel, right? So just, it breaks down. But if he was a celebrity pastor today, you might think of him like this, like the crowds saw him speak maybe at a conference or listened to his podcast, right? Sort of distanced, right? They heard him speak, but they didn't have a personal relationship, right? The disciples were members of his local church, right? They got to hear him talk all the time. They got to have discussions with him. There was a dialogue happening with the disciples. If you go further in than that, there's a, another concentric circle in here. There's the 12. I think often we think of the disciples as the 12 disciples, and that's not what's going on here. Jesus had anywhere from 70 to a couple hundred of disciples at any given point in time. So he's got people that are following him in this sort of broader circle. And then he has another inner circle that are the 12. They're kind of the members of his community group, right? Like he takes them aside from the, the rest and goes, hey, like, this is what I'm thinking. Here's a little bit greater intimacy with him relationally, right? And then maybe the, the three, Peter, James, and John, were his discipleship group, right? Like as we're, we've been talking about the last couple of weeks a little bit, right? You have guys like just meeting together in a very small group, very high degrees of intimacy, lots of speaking back and forth. There's a whole lot of personal dialogue. There's true friendship, right? That's beyond just the 12. He's got these three guys, and perhaps Peter was his best friend. Right? We see him most often throughout the scriptures conversing with Jesus on this one-on-one -on -one basis. So as part of one of these inner concentric circles, though, the disciples, sort of in that first concentric circle, the disciples got to ask questions and have discussions, not just listen to him speak in public. <clears throat> they might not have known Jesus as well as his innermost circles, but they definitely knew him personally. For those who are sort of in that circle, Jesus took time to teach them more personally and deeply than the crowds. <laughs> Jesus taught many amazing things to the crowds, but he took the, his, his disciples aside and he said, I'm gonna tell you even more. I'm gonna get alone with you and show you even more. And so in this instance, he avoided the crowds and set to teaching his disciples privately. And here was the big news. Look at verse 31. He was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Maybe this doesn't seem like big news at this point. First of all, if, it, it's, if you haven't been here for the rest of the series in Mark, you might go, well, obviously, 
right? Obviously, Jesus dies. We know this. Like, if you're in church, like, you probably know that, right? You probably know that Jesus dies, and then he rises again, right? That's, that's what happens in the narrative. <coughs> Excuse me. But there is a nuance here that he, Jesus hasn't taught before in this gospel. In 831, uh, Jesus tells them that the elders and scribes will, will uh, reject him and kill him. That's in 831. Sorry, that's, that's further back. And then in 9, 9 through 13, he reiterates the same sort of idea, all right? So you can look through those if you'd like. But here, he notes something that he is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Looking at this phrase with 2020 hindsight, we see that there really is something being revealed here. They might not have known it in the moment. It might not have clicked in the moment. But Jesus was telling them something that was very, very important for them to remember, that he was delivered into the hands of of <clears throat> these sinful people. Because with 2020 hindsight, we can look back and we can say, this points to him being delivered up to the authorities by Judas. He knew it was going to happen, exactly how it happened even then. He said, I'm going to be delivered up. It's not that Jesus is going to run away and hide and then get caught. It's that he was going to be delivered up. He wasn't going to fight his way out and then fail to, to defend himself from the authorities with a sword, he was going to be delivered up. But even more, this points to Acts 2.23, which I forgot to put in the, in the overheads, but you get the idea. It's, it says that uh, he would be delivered up. He was, he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and he was killed by the hands of lawless men. That's Acts 2.23, if you want to look it up. There's twofold here. He's saying, hey, I'm going to be delivered up. I am going to be delivered up not only according to the plan of Judas to betray me, but I am going to be delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. If you've ever wondered <laughs> if God could use bad stuff to do great things, the answer is yes. There's some, some peace there for us. I won't go into that too much today, but I, I do want you to hear that. There is peace in knowing that God can use even the most terrible things in your life to do great things for his purposes. Your suffering has meaning if you're in Christ. Of course, the disciples didn't have the benefit of 2020 hindsight. They were a little lost. It says this in verse 32, they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. So basically, what happened was, <laughs> like most students, they just sort of smiled and nodded and they said, well, I don't want to look dumb in front of Jesus or the other disciples. I'm just going just gonna to fade into the background, right? I'm just not going to say anything. I'm not going to rock the boat. I don't want to stir anything up. So we'll just leave that aside. They thought, hey, we'll just, we're not going to worry about this for right now. Obviously, as I've said before, the disciples had some preconceived ideas about what the Messiah was going to be, right? And that... This narrative of Jesus dying and rising again, that didn't really fit their narrative. And so they just sort of moved on. They were like, ah, oh, Jesus is saying funny stuff again. I don't know how to process that. So let's move on to something that, that we do know about. Let's talk about power and position. Let's argue about that. How does that sound? That's what they thought to themselves. Hey, we're going to leave that, that deep stuff behind, and we're going to talk about the things we know. And so we're going to just, uh, <clears throat> just going to show our our dealings with pride here. And so they begin to argue about pride or power and position. 
It says this in verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? As if Jesus didn't know, by the way. We'll get there in a second. He said, what were you discussing on the way? And it says that they kept silent, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was greatest. You might think that this sort of turn of pride in the disciples is a new thing, that this is sort of a narrative development happening here, right? That previously maybe they were relatively humble and now like <clears throat> they're getting comfortable, right? And they're beginning to argue about these things and they're starting to get a little prideful. But the reality is we get a foretaste of this pride breaking out in the disciples just in the previous passage. See, rather than humbling themselves before God and praying that he, God, would cast out that demon that they couldn't cast out, they were running around acting like they could do miraculous things in their own power. Jesus corrects them by saying, this type, this type of spiritual being, demons, by the way, cannot be cast out by anything but prayer. He says, you can't do this on your own. What are you guys doing? Are you trying to use my name like a magic word? No. Go to God, humble yourself, know that you cannot do this on your own, and go to him in prayer. Only then can this demon be cast out because God has the power to cast him out. <laughs> in fact, even if you look further back than this failed exorcism in the previous passage, if you look at the, the second part of chapter 8 and the whole of chapter 9 up to this point, we see this clear line of thought, sort of beginning to juxtapose who Jesus is, his humility, with the, the problems that the disciples are obviously having. Let's sort of walk through this real quick. In verse, um, <coughs> verse 29 of chapter 8, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, right? We remember this. He says, you are the Christ. Man, what a big revelation, right? This is a high point. This position of Christ being anointed, being the Messiah, afforded him with a great degree of power and of stature and of status <coughs> and of authority, okay? It's, it, he, he is far and above all of his disciples, and they see this. They know he's the Christ. He's not just a Christ. He's the Christ. What a big thing, right? And they see this, and they're like, man, what an amazing person is our teacher, but then Jesus immediately follows that up with what? That he's going to be rejected by the elders and scribes, suffer and die. That's 831 of the book of Mark. Next, we see that Jesus is the transcendent God of the universe, displaying just his partial glory to his closest followers on the Mount of Transfiguration. He goes there and he, they, he pulls back the curtain and they see just a little bit, just a glimpse, a sliver of his total glory and they are blinded with unimaginable light. This is verses, or chapter nine, verses two through three. But then he says that the people of this world are going to do with him whatever they please just like they did with John, from the mountaintop down to the valley. There's a, there's a height, there's a power that's in him, and yet he says the authorities, these small, insignificant, earthly authorities that could do nothing to me as God are going to take me and kill me. What a juxtaposition, what a, what a contrast. 
And then we see that Jesus is also the son of God who commands demons to flee in verse 25 of chapter 9. But then again, in verse 31, it says that he is going to submit himself to be murdered. He's going to be delivered up. Juxtaposition, casting out demons and yet killed by small earthly authorities. I have no doubt that the author here, God ultimately through Mark, is teaching us about the humility of Christ and the character and nature of God's kingdom. God's kingdom isn't built on power. It's not a power structure. It's not built on this idea of like, well, the person with the most power becomes the, the person whom everyone else serves. There is an inversion happening here to a degree. It's not that there's no hierarchy. God is obviously at the top, and yet God seeks to serve his people. It's not as though we can do anything for God that would serve him in any sort of real sense as if we were adding value to him. We can't. We can't add value to God. It's impossible. He's perfect in and of himself. But he comes down to us, and then he invites us to come along and to glorify him just to reflect his glory. But the disciples had a problem. They had puffed themselves up in competition with one another about who would be the greatest. See, being in this inner circle, even if it was more than 70 people, created some pride for these disciples. And the pride was baseless. I mean, really, seriously, think about who the disciples were as people. What did they have with which to measure themselves against one another? They had left everything behind. They had no material possessions. They were just following Jesus. And they weren't really likely to be affluent. Think about it. Jesus had chosen these 12 out of, out of uh, just the dregs of humanity, right? You know when you make a French press coffee? Are you, anybody a coffee geek? Somebody? All right, yeah, awesome. So, uh, so when you make a French press go- coffee, right, like, and you pour it into your cup, there's that like, kind of sludge that happens on the very bottom of a cup. You know what I'm talking about, right? It's like Jesus, like say that represents humanity, right? And he's looking at who he's going to choose as his disciples, and he says, I'm just going to pour out the coffee, and I'm going to take the sludgy stuff in the bottom. That's who the disciples were. They were the very bottom of society, right? They, they were fishermen and tax collectors. They weren't the highest of society. He could have chosen kings, but he didn't. He chose these lowly, small, insignificant, bottom of society people. And here they are going, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? What an insane thing. And yet we do it all the time, don't we? Ultimately, it was their association with Jesus, which imbued them with some potential for greatness, maybe. Maybe they wanted to see who was riding most closely on Jesus' coattails, right? Maybe Peter, James, and John were the ones who had the most to boast about in that circumstance. And in fact, in the next chapter, James and John are going to be explicitly asking for positions of power in Jesus' kingdom. But really, if they were really being rational about the circumstances, they would find that they had no real reason to expect places of power or position. They were lucky lucky to stand near him, but their proximity to Jesus had turned itself into pride. You ever do this as a kid? You know the game where like when when you're in grade school, you like you and your buddies get together and it becomes like, well, what does your mom do? What does your dad do? 
right? Like it's a, it, it's really, it's a, it's a stature contest. We're trying to figure out like <clears throat> who is the, the best, who's the most powerful, right? There's a, there's sort of a social pecking order. And the reality is these kids, like, I know I did this, like as, as kids, like you don't have any power in and of yourself. We'll get to that in a minute. There's no real authority, no power, no position. You're just a child, right? And so what do you have to do? Well, you have to go to your associations. Well, I associate with my parents, and so you can, you can put me on the social pecking order according to how powerful we perceive my parent to be. Maybe they were doing something like that. I mean, it's, it's such a strange thing because, like I said, we don't have any real power in and of ourselves, and we're just competing due to association. And really, if Jesus had been a standard conqueror like they'd sort of expected him to be, they would have been right to think about these things. If you were a friend of the king, you were going to be somebody, right? They could talk about these things. But as we've seen time and time again, again, uh, Jesus wasn't just any savior. He was the Christ who would die for the sins of his people, right? This is who Jesus was. It wasn't just this, I'm going to set myself up with power and everyone is going to serve me as this <clears throat> heavy-handed evil dictator that does whatever he wants with people. No, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. I think it's, there's something to be had, said here before we uh, move on about the, the sort of stench of snobbish, elitist, moral superiority that can waft from the words and actions of Christians. Like, we think our closeness with Jesus affords us the right to act as if we are better than someone else. But it is far, far better to consider yourself the worst of all sinners than to treat others with disdain, as we're going to see in just a moment. Our association with Jesus may afford us all sort of blessing, sorts of blessings, and it does. But as the, a Puritan once prayed, let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up and that to be low is to be high. He's saying in this kingdom of God, it's not like our, the kingdoms that we think of. It's not about that. It's not about power and position. It's about service. It's about humility. It's about laying aside everything and going, you know what? Like, Whatever God gives me, I am going to bring it to bear to serve others. Ultimately, this is the, the lesson that Jesus teaches his disciples, not only in the following verses, but throughout this chapter uh, and the last, and throughout his ministry. He's not simply a conqueror here. He is also the humble lamb led to the slaughter to serve his people. Jesus was well aware of this discussion that his disciples were having, right? Like he knew that they were having this sort of argument about, oh, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? I mean, it's obvious that he, that he knew this because he begins to address it in the rest of the passage, right? Sort of assumed Jesus knew what was going on, even though they kept their mouths shut. I think this is funny, to be honest with you. Like maybe it's supernatural revelation, or maybe Jesus just knew his people and he was like, obviously they're dealing with some pride. Like I've seen it. And like, this has been a, a course of conversation that have been having for, for weeks or days, who knows? But either way, he knew that something was going on and it was time to put a stop to it. And so just like me and my friends with the magic CD, <laughs> the disciples were caught red-handed. Jesus saw right through it. He was like, 
you think that you've hidden things from me? No, I, I know exactly what's been going on. And look, when God asks you a question like this, right? He says, what were you discussing on the way? You really only have one option, one option, right? Fess up. I mean, ser- seriously, just fess up. But the reality is that uh, we've been taking other options ever since the beginning. Adam and Eve chose to hide instead of going to God and just being up front. And so as good fallen human beings, the disciples thought, hey, maybe we should hide our sin just by keeping our mouths shut. They thought that might work, but <laughs> it did not. And uh, I think it's interesting that, uh, that this interchange happens, and I, I want to point something out. And as we begin to roll out discipleship groups, which, by the way, I said we were going to announce more fully this week. It's going to be next week. I misspoke. I apologize. Um, one of the, the questions, though, that we're going to ask you to answer uh, is, what does this passage teach me about God? So let's just take a moment and look at this question, right? Jesus asks them, what were you discussing on the way? And they kept silent, and then yet Jesus directly addresses the issue, right? Applying that question then, what does this passage teach me about God? It's abundantly clear that there is no hiding your sin from God. I mean, Adam and Eve couldn't do it in the garden, and neither could the disciples. We learn from this passage exactly what we learn from the garden. If you think you can hide your sin, you should know that your little fig leaf isn't hiding anything. Do you really think that, like seriously, take a moment. Do you really think that you can hide your sin from God? I've had plenty of people come through this church who were hiding deep, dark, terrible things. They, they, they acted like Christians, but they weren't. They acted like, they, look, I say they weren't because they weren't struggling. They were just giving in and it was fine with them to act duplicitously, okay? Think about that then. I might not be able to see it. Your friends might not be able to see it. Your fr- family might not be able to see it, but God sees it. He knows you. I mean, you'd think that we'd get this. Like God is... Uh, omniscient, right? He sees all, he knows all. <clears throat> and you'd think that we would just, we wouldn't think that we could hide our sin from God, but what do our actions say? Are you afraid to pray about certain things? When, if you're worried about approaching a sin issue in your life in prayer, you have to ask, am I trying to hide this? Am I, have I constructed a garment of fig leaves here? Am I trying to keep my mouth shut in front of Jesus himself? Ask that question. If you're afraid to pray about something, ask, like, is it because I'm ashamed or is it because I love that sin so much that I don't want to expose it to the light? Ask yourself that question, like, because really, Jesus saw straight through them and God sees straight through you too. He sees straight through me. Any kind of air I might put off, he knows me. I need to be honest. I need to be honest with other people. I need to be honest with him. If there's something in my life, I got to pray about it. I got to put it before him or that thing is going to eat me alive and he's still going to know about it. Ultimately, everything that is hidden will come to light. But I love this. They were caught red-handed and maybe that would have been enough, right? Like they, they knew that Jesus knew when he started addressing this problem. And he could have just said, hey, stop it. 
<laughs> I mean, sometimes we need that, all right? Sometimes we just need a, hey, stop it, right? But the reality is that Jesus was a far better teacher than my teacher when I was a kid, when she threw away the CD and didn't address it, right? Jesus took this opportunity. He was like, teachable moment time, all right? I know what you were talking about. Don't act like I don't. All right, let's dig deep. And so he says this in verse 35, or yeah, in verse uh, 35, he sat down and called the 12, right? So he's just, he's bringing them apart from the rest of the disciples because he's gonna show them something that's this big, right? This is the nature of the kingdom. He says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. I mean, if I was one of the 12 in this moment, that would sting. Like, you get called out, like, come here, right? <laughs> I don't know if Jesus, I don't know if Jesus did that or not. Like, I don't know if he gave him the, come here, right? But like, you know what I mean, right? Like, he says like, come apart, come over here. I wanna show you something. Let me teach you something. I mean, I, I would be, I, it, that would be a stinging indictment if I was trying to hide it and he was like, oh yeah, I knew what you're talking about. And so Jesus, though, like, he doesn't, he doesn't slap them in the face. He doesn't yell at them. He, he takes this gentle approach, which is so common of him for anyone other than the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? Like, he takes this approach of like, I'm going to just call you aside and I'm going to begin addressing this softly because you know what you've done right? I'm going to try to teach you something in this moment, he says, and <clears throat> begins to address it with this gentle firmness that doesn't condemn them, but instructs them. What might have been just a moment that passed and faded from memory, he indelibly marked on their memories with this paradoxical remark about being last, meaning it's going, you're going to be first, right? And who's the greatest servant of all? We can go ahead and get that out of, the, out, of, out of the way, right? This is Jesus, right? If you want to be first, you're going to have to be better than Jesus. He's saying, like, you, you can't get there, but if you want to be close to me, if you want to be near to me, if you want to have that sort of relationship, guess what? Lay it all aside. No pride. There is no place for pride in the kingdom of God. And truly, this is what he's been showing them all along. He has a kingdom. He has the power to, cast, or to do miracles and to cast out demons. He speaks to Moses and Elijah as if they're old friends. God the Father himself speaks from the heavens over him. He's been teaching them this juxtaposition between that power, that raw, unadulterated, unfathomable power. He's been teaching them about that, but he doesn't do what anyone expects. If you had all the power in the universe at your fingertips, what would you do? What would you do? Right? Just think about the power. Just think about the raw power that Jesus just had at his disposal. Think of the power of God who created all things, both spiritual and physical. Don't just think about the, the physical universe here. I'm talking about things you can't see, things you could never comprehend. He created every single thing. That's the kind of power that we're talking about in God the Son, Jesus Christ. I mean, would, would you walk around homeless, with a bunch, bunch of fishermen, tax collectors, and prostitutes seeking out the lowest of society? If you had all of that power, be really honest with yourself. Be dead honest with yourself. The answer is no. Because in, in a moment, 
in a moment you might think, well, I'd do some of those things. But if you had that kind of power and position, you might start thinking, well, shouldn't other people be serving me? I have all of this stuff. I can do all these things. Shouldn't other people be serving me? Shouldn't they do everything in their power just to get a taste of the blessings that, that I can season their lives with? Poor little people. If you could heal the sick and call the dead back to life, wouldn't you use those powers to make yourself immortal first? Jesus died. He didn't have to. He was immortal. He didn't have to die. Ask yourself the question, like, if, if, you, if you had all of this power, wouldn't you go first to your friends, to those who are in the highest places who could help you, to those who are closest to you and, and go, like, oh, I'll make you immortal too, and make you immortal too, and, like, like use that sort of methodology of, like, well, these people could serve me. These people could help my life. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be interesting? Wouldn't it, I'll say this, like, I'm gonna, tweak, I'm gonna tweak on your sin just a little bit, so just bear with me. Like, because it's in here too, all right? Like, I'm not saying anything to you that I haven't said to myself here, right? Like, if you could make yourself unable to feel pain, loss, and sadness, but you could intensify every feeling of happiness and pleasure, no juxtaposition necessary. You don't need the negative to perceive the positive, right? You could experience all sorts of amazing happiness, all the best things this world has to offer, and yet feel nothing of the negative. Wouldn't you do it? Wouldn't you do it for yourself? If you could have any object, any experience, any pleasure, any blessing, without reservation, and at no cost to yourself, wouldn't you avail yourself of the opportunity? Would any rule or law truly apply to you? Would anything at all be out of your reach? Or would it overtake you little by little? In the beginning, you might go, well, I'm going to be altruistic. I'm going to make it about everyone else. Maybe at first you'd resist, but at some point you'd be faced with a need, a want maybe. Maybe your own mortality or the mortality of a loved one. It would be just so easy to just reach out, touch that power, and remake the world in your image. You just different, better in your own image. Serve no one but yourself. Let them all fall as they may. You could set up kingdoms to serve you and you could fall from the highest heights without injury. Or maybe you just make loaves out of stones. But that's not who Jesus is. All of creation is meant to serve him and yet he served us. He's still serving us. It's not like he just did it once and it's done. He's still serving us. Little lowly us. In, Jesus, in this passage, Jesus calls us to this paradox that the Almighty laid aside his power and became man to serve his own creation even unto death on a cross at the hands of the very people he created, experiencing untold suffering. He was not numb from that. And even death for our sakes. True 
servant. The ancient theologians created a term of, to describe what Jesus calls his disciples to then in this passage, and it's Christus exemplar. That is Christ the example. See, Jesus doesn't just say, hey, this is who I am. He says, this is what my kingdom is like, and if you want to be a part of it, shift your mindset. Right? Shift your mindset. Think about it differently. See, Jesus' kingdom isn't for the arrogant, the prideful, and the jealous for power. The kingdom of God has a culture of humility and service, just as Jesus shows us in these next and last couple of verses. In verses 36 and 37, it says, And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives such a child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And so, to drive this example home, Jesus brings a child into the mix. If you're a parent, you know two things about your kids. Let's be real honest at the moment. I know I don't have kids, so don't hate me too much when I say this, but I, I, I was a kid myself, and so I, I understand this to be true as well. All right, if you're a parent, you know this. One, children are a gift from the Lord, right? Children are an amazing gift. If you think about it, right, like if, if you have kids, like, man, what an amazing thing, right? God has given you these little immortal souls to care for and love, and you pour everything that you have into them. That's the first thing you know. The second thing that you know is that they're an incredible drain on your time, money, and resources. Am I right? Can I get an amen from a parent? Yeah, that's right. Look, I, look, I know they, they bring us incredible love and joy and certain, certainly uh, all of those things, but they, they are not productive members of society, okay? They provide no goods or services in return for your blood, sweat, and tears, right? You know, you know this. I mean, perhaps when they get older, they can at least pull their own weight, but when they're young, they can't do anything to help. They just consume, right? They take your time, they take your money, they take your resources, they take your food, right? Whatever else, right? Like it's just, it's constant flow in. There's not a whole lot out, right? And if it's out, then it's probably not all that great. These days, we don't like to think in these terms, right? We're more enlightened, but just like consider this with me. If you're thinking in strictly material terms and you truly parent your kids, loving them and providing for them as you should, you are very unlikely to recoup your investment in any reasonable amount of time, if ever, right? So, when you think about this, parenting becomes truly a labor of love, right? If I had my own children, I wouldn't hesitate to care for them out of that love in an incredible way. And I would never think of them in terms of return on investment, but we're going to do it right now, okay? So let's get super real. If there are two members of the family that compete for the bottom rung of the ladder in terms of productivity and material return on investment and this value to society... There are children and cats, and then everyone else, all right? <laughs> Be honest with me, all right? You know it, right? They, like, I'm just talking about material return on investment, okay? Cats actually cost less. That's okay. They're more independent. <laughs> but think about this, though. Like, when, when ancient cultures looked at children, they often saw them in terms of value to society. I, I, we don't want to talk about things... Like this, and, and look, I, I'm, I'm saying like I, I, I think the children truly are an amazing gift from the Lord, and that far outweighs any of this. But like, 
bear with me, right? The, the ancient cultures saw children as the lowest of the low. They were in the bottom tiers of society. They had nothing to provide for the rest of society. They couldn't produce anything. Maybe once they got older, they could work in the fields. They could do things like that. But look, at, at when, when you were talking about small children, they, like the ancient cultures said, mm, marginalized. Like, we don't think about these kids like, unless we're their parents. Like, we don't really care about children all that much. And if you were an orphan, like, it was rough going. There were no programs. There was nothing, right? Just out there on your own because these societies would say, ah, low, insignificant. So, that, so when Jesus takes this child from the group of the disciples, and he, he's there with the 12, right? He's, he's, in the, he's in this exclusive group where these guys are feeling prideful about their proximity to Jesus, right? He, he, he goes over and he grabs this child, this small, insignificant little creature, right, that, that can't provide for himself, who is dependent on everyone else, and he brings him into this circle. Talking about proximity to Jesus, like Jesus was probably holding his hand, right? He brings him in. He says, look, you see this child as being the lowest member of society. He provides no material value to society. He has no power or position or prestige but I'm serving him just the same as I serve you. You might, like, uh, let, me, let me show you, he says, like, like, let me show you that, that I s- am here to serve, not to be served, and that my kingdom is a kingdom of humility and service, not a kingdom of manipulative, abusive power. I want you to notice something, though, that's just an incredible detail that shows us the true heart of Christ with this crystal clarity, right? He, he, could have, he could have went out, he could have grabbed this child's hand and walked him in to this circle of 12 men and led him out into the middle and showed him to them as an object lesson. Look at this child, right? He could have said. That's not what he did. What did he do? What did he do? He, he brought the child over and he picks him up in his arms. He holds him. He says, this is a safe place. I'm not going to leave you out here in front of these grown men who are just going to sit here and stare at you. I'm going to bring you in. I'm going to hold you up. He took the lowest member of society, the lowest of the low. He picks up this child, puts him in his arms. The creator of the universe, the word of God, the logos, holding the lowest member of human society in his arms. What an incredible picture. That's God's love for us. We're wayward children. We're providing him with nothing he doesn't already have. And yet, what does he do? He he takes us in his arms. He picks us up. He says, let me bring you out of obscurity, out of all of the badness, all of the, the stuff of this world. Let me... Let me pick you up. I'm just going to hold you in my arms. If you're a Christian, I, I think you know that love. Sometimes we forget about it. Just like the disciples did. Sometimes we forget that we're being held by the creator of the universe who receives no value from us, but he chooses to serve us anyway. 
He, he gets glory, but it's really just his glory reflected back. We aren't creating anything for him. You're bettering him. He has it all, but he's holding us in his arms. Like, I, think about it. Like, wh- who were you before you knew Christ? Who, who were you? Who could you have been if you had not known Christ? Right? If you knew Christ from a very young age, you might just have to ask yourself the question, where could I have gone? Right? Who might I have been? If you know your own sins, if you know your own predilections, ask yourself that question, where could I have gone? And then you see how God looks down and sees this, this one who has fallen short, this one who still falls short, And he just, he says, I'm going to give you a place in my kingdom. I'm going to give you a spot near me. I'm going to give you a place in my family. I'm going to do this not because you cajoled me, not because you leveraged me to give you something, but simply out of love. Today, you are a lowly child held in the arms of the Lord of hosts, the King of kings, the creator of all things, the Alpha and Omega, the great I am. If you are in Christ today, that is who you are, a wayward child hoisted up on the shoulders of Jesus. You don't compare to him, and yet he loves you so much that he would suffer a sinner's death for you. If you... If you don't know that today, if you haven't experienced God's love like that, then it's time to repent. It's, it's time to ask that question like, maybe I've been going to church, but like, I, I, I don't know if I've actually been a Christian. I don't know if I've experienced that love. I don't know if I can say, yes, I know that for a fact that God is holding me in his arms right now. Maybe it's time to, to turn away from your sin and just trust in Jesus. Allow like that understanding of his love to to penetrate and to, to draw you in. Right? He's, gonna, he's just going to pick you up. If you believe that, though, if you believe that Jesus died on the cross to save you, a wayward child, then there's only one question left to ask, right? The question is, how should we respond? How should we respond then to the humility of the creator of the universe? How should we respond? Last verse, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So how do we respond then? We respond by receiving others like you are receiving God himself, because you are. He doesn't say, it's like you are receiving me and it's like you are receiving the one who sent me. By the way, that's God the Father, right? He's not saying it's like that. He says that it is that, right? There is a spiritual receiving of Christ when you receive someone else in humility. There is a receiving of God the Father. There is a closeness that happens when you receive the littlest, smallest, most insignificant person in, in your life and in society. 
when you welcome, serve, and otherwise honor other people, especially the disenfranchised, the insignificant, then you are welcoming, serving, and honoring God himself. It's not as though they are God, okay? If you're going to philosophize on me, I can slice it real thin for you later, but it's not that you are entertaining God himself. He doesn't inhabit those people or something like that, but there is a spiritual way in which you are truly receiving God himself in that moment. You're saying, I welcome you because it was what Jesus commanded. He says, this, when you receive one like this, you receive me. So when you start to think of yourself as better than others, I want you to adjust your perspective and just ask the question, how would I treat Jesus if he was standing in front of me? Yeah, even sinners, even people outside the church, even those who you think will never come to Christ, you don't, like they're just living crazy wanton lives, right? Like they're just out there doing whatever they want. Yeah, even the, the least of those. You think about people who are just in absolute poverty and dejection, who society just wants to ignore. All of those people, guess what? When you meet them, treat them like Jesus. Treat them like you would treat Jesus himself. And that applies to church, in the home, at work, online, and everywhere in between. Yeah, I said online, right? I know that social media is a great place to go if you want to spew vitriol at one another, but that's not the place for it. Receive others as you receive Christ. We need to open our eyes to the marginalized people around us and bring them in. Start here at church, sure, or start in your own family, but begin to expand your perspective. We like to, as as relatively well-to-do Westerners. We like to disregard some of those who are maybe lower in societal uh, standings than ourselves. Start to see them. Look for them. They're there. You've just been ignoring them. Shoot, if, if, you're, at, if you're in church and you're part of the in crowd and you're part of the the the, the regular attenders or your best friends with so-and-so and whoever, guess what? Bring others in. It's not time to keep other people at arm's length. That's not what's going on here. It says when you receive the least. So who is the least in that situation? The least is someone you don't know. That's the least person that's there in that context. When you see them, bring them in. Not just bring them into the, into the front doors, bring them in to the circle just like Jesus did with that little child. He brought, it, brought that child into the, the circle of the 12. Look, if you th are worried this sounds woke, I'll say this. Jesus didn't ignore suffering or injustice, and neither should we. It's really popular right now for evangelical Christians to go, oh, well, like, we don't really care about all that stuff. All those social programs, we, that's for the liberals or that's for these people or that's for the socialists or that's for whatever your political stance might be. Guess what? Jesus didn't let them go just ignored. The, the marginalized of society were not ignored by Christ. Guess what? Compared to Christ, you are marginalized. If he had ignored you, curtains. So look, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Like, just because you might disagree with the tactics or the solutions or the political stances of people who have attempted to solve either real or perceived problems doesn't mean you should close your eyes and act like the disenfranchised, the sick, the poor, and the lowly don't exist at all. Look for them and receive them as you receive Christ.
I think our church could do better here. I really do. I think I could do better here. And unfortunately, Casey and Kendall aren't here, but like, I want to, I want to call them out. Like, we need friends like them, okay? Casey and Kendall are incredible people when it comes to this stuff. They constantly come up with new ways to be a blessing to those who might be otherwise ignored in our society. Like I said before, those two are an incredible blessing, and not only to this church, but to me personally. They push me. They ask me questions that I'm like, man, that's uncomfortable. Oh, let's like, okay, maybe I need to lean into that. And even, even <laughs> these last couple of weeks, I think the kids are doing it right now. The, uh, they're, they're creating um, Valentine's Day cards uh, for a retirement community right around the corner, right? Who, who are the disenfranchised of society? Uh, it, it's, it's our friends in the retirement homes who nobody can go see right now because COVID restrictions and who are ignored because, and they're just shoved off into, into little corners. I mean, not everybody treats people in retirement homes like that, but like, look, there are lots of them there who feel completely disenfranchised, completely disconnected and unloved, right? Even now, the kids are doing better than us sometimes, <laughs> creating these cards. And every single person in that retirement community is going to get a card. And it says, we love because he first loved us. But look, it can't stop there. It, it, we have to weave this value of humble service throughout our lives, individually and corporately. And the only way to do that is to focus more deeply on what God has done for us. And so I want to leave you with this. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says, Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So if you're in Christ, this is, this is yours. All you must do is grasp it. Use it. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So today, as you go from here, consider that you are simply a child held and loved by God, and then go and do likewise in his name. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.